Hi everyone, this is Gary Vees. Back again with the case against. We're up to episode 64. And I'm going to be talking today about Jason Baldwin's alibi, or more correctly, his lack of an alibi. We've already looked at the um, the alibis of uh, Jesse Miskelly Jr. and concluded that he doesn't have a viable alibi. Basically, his, his, his alibi is two alibis. One, he went on this trip to wrestling to uh, to Dias, Arkansas, and concluded, number one, it really doesn't offer an alibi because of the time frame, and number two, it probably never occurred, and it certainly didn't occur as it was presented to the court as proved by uh, documents uh, provided by the prosecution showing that uh, the trip actually occurred the week before. Uh, the other, His other alibi is that uh, he was involved in a um, police visiting the trailer park where he lived, and he he somehow acted as a me, the semi retarded or fully retarded or however you want to characterize this guy, who's not intelligent. I'm not suggesting he is, but uh, that he was acting as somehow a mediator between uh, children and parent warring parents and the police at this uh, over this uh, dispute about a child being slapped. Not Jesse. Jesse didn't slap the child. Um, and that was disproved by the fact that all three police officers who knew Miskelly said he wasn't on the scene. Uh, Damien Eccles has two alibis um, that he attempted. Uh, he's never really promoted the idea that he went on this visit to the Sanders family along with his his parents and his sister and the, uh, while they were over there they were what he was he was spent the punch part of the evening watching Beverly Hills 90210 which is probably just about the uncoolest thing that Eccles could ever confess to if he ever actually did do that um, he's never really pushed that narrative but that's what his, his mother pushed and uh Basically, that was enough doubt was cast on that in the court proceedings by the statements of his alibi witnesses that brought up dates, their timestamp dates proved to be incorrect, particularly uh, the date of uh, the, the little girl that was there uh, at the house that evening said it was occurred just before her boyfriend's band concert and it turns out the band concert occurred two weeks later so that cast doubt on that uh some other problems with that uh his other supposed alibi is he was talking to girls well the statements from all four of the girls that have been mentioned all we none of them would give him an alibi so he doesn't have a phone call alibi but he continues to say he does uh, Jason Baldwin's attempts at an alibi have been even more pathetic than that, as we'll get into. Um, and since I've written, 
I wrote this book uh, that I'm quoting from, Where the Monsters Go. Uh, Baldwin's giving, given a, a number of other interviews, and basically he still, when he's asked about his alibi, he basically gives the same very general mis, sort of misdirection about what was going on that evening to make it sound like he actually had a really good alibi when, in fact, it, he had no alibi that was presented at trial. He didn't present an alibi to police except to say he was, uh, initially to say he was at home that evening uh, in his very early cooperation with police. And um, and he, uh, none of his witnesses uh, that he has talked about is corroborating his alibi, actually corroborate his alibi. Uh, some really significant problems with it. Uh, it's This is a fairly long chapter, and I don't know if I'm going to read the whole thing or not. Uh, it just depends on how my voice holds up and a number of other factors. Uh, I want to say briefly, this is from my book, Where the Monsters Go. It's the second volume of two-volume set. The first volume is Blood on Black. Uh, there's a combined, revised, condensed version, somewhat cheaper maybe more readable, called The Case Against the West Memphis Three Killers. And I say it's more readable in that I really try to put in, there's some redundant material in uh, the two larger books. And part of what I was doing there was providing redundancy to show that these statements were made over and over and over again by various people. When I could have just said, oh, they just repeated the, same, the story. In some cases, I did that anyway, just because it went on too, too much, too long. But there are cases where I went, a lot of it is somewhat repetitious. And usually there's some slight variations in the stories that are worth leaving in there. But uh, it's, it's a lot easier when you can say you feel confident enough with your materials that you can just simply say he repeated the story, you know, he or she repeated essentially the same story to investigators two years later or whatever it is. And it's not that I don't have confidence in my materials because I'm based, it's based on court records and inter police interviews. Um, I, don't, I really don't have confidence in the few supporters who would actually get a hold of this book and read it, that they would actually read it in an objective sort of way. So presenting a full set of facts to them at least makes it difficult for them to say, oh, well, you didn't, you didn't really explain that properly. Or in this interview on such and such a date, he, he, she gave a different set of, slightly different set of times, which is a, a real typical supporter thing. They they compare different statements from different people and pair them off against, uh, uh, from the same person or different people and pair them off against each other and use those kind of discrepancies to try to explain away uh, the mountain of evidence against the West Memphis Three and usually focus in on really irrelevant and trivial details. You know, this was 640. He said... It was 6.15, and she said it was 6.45, and blah, 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 and that sort of stuff. Anyway, as I already said, unlike the other two killers, Jason Baldwin never attempted at the time of his arrest 
or at the time of his trial to establish an alibi. He senses claimed that he was in the company of friends and family that evening and that he told police of his whereabouts. In a letter to uh, his girlfriend, Heather Clyatt, after his arrest, Baldwin wrote, quote, I have two lawyers. They seem to be pretty confident that I'm going to be found innocent, which I am. I have people to testify in court where I was all that day. So I am going to be found innocent at the trial. Now, that's what he told Heather Quiet, but there's no record indicating that Baldwin had a list of people to testify about his whereabouts all that day. Uh, none ever testified. And there, there's no evidence from the record that those people existed. I mean, Jason likes to make things up like everybody, like his friend Damian Eccles, he likes to make things up. Uh, according to Marl Everett's book about Baldwin, Dark Spell, Surviving the Sentence, which I'm going to describe, I'm, I'm going to describe now as a, a comic masterpiece. If you read it with the right frame of mind, of scrawny little Jason Baldwin beating down the rest of the cell block by the power of his will over and over again and showing his mastery of uh, prison uh, social structure and hierarchy. It's very interesting and, and really hilarious. Because this is all based on what Jason is telling Mara, his good buddy. Anyway, Jason told his, according to Mara Leverett, uh, Jason told his defense attorney, quote, I was cutting my uncle's lawn. I was hanging out with my friend after cutting the yard, spending some, t some of the money my uncle had paid me, playing video games at Walmart. There was a guy there watching me play video games. I didn't even know the guy, but he was just waiting his turn. Then I went to a friend's house and bought a cassette. I talked to my girlfriend on the phone and ate dinner and saw my brother's and my mom's boyfriend. Just normal things that you do. Those are the things I was doing that day. I wasn't out murdering anybody. Okay. All that is, he, he gives no time frame on any of that now, does he? And he's very short on specifics beyond Walmart. Uh, Darkspell reported that Baldwin had, quote, been with his mother and her current boyfriend, Dennis, Dennis Dink Dent, with his brothers, Matt and Terry, with his uncle, Hubert Bartouche, with Damien and Dominique, Ken Watkins, and Adam Phillips, and his sister and her boyfriend. You know what? That's all sort of true. But it's an egregious bit of misdirection from the offer. Marl Everett made no attempt to provide any kind of context for this, so you can see when, the crucial thing with these alibis is when were these, these so-called alibis relevant when were they actually applied to the time frame of the murder of these boys? And Jason was missing from all those scenarios.
with the exception of maybe Ken Watkins, if you believe if you believe Ken Watkins and Ken Watkins story is absolutely incompatible with Jason Baldwin's story. If you believe Jason Baldwin, you can't believe both Jason Baldwin and Ken Watkins because the stories are not, they don't work together. But um, if you believe one or the other of those bad choices, then what he's saying, that would be the only instance where he would have had an alibi. The problem is, is Ken Watkins does not provide an alibi to Jason Baldwin and he can't alibi himself by claiming he was at Walmart playing uh, video games when there's no one else that says that that has any kind of credibility. So Baldwin did see all the people listed that day. None provided a credible alibi from about 6 until after 9 p.m. Matt tried to provide tried to provide an alibi, but wasn't credible enough to be put on the stand. Ken Watkins' account of that evening was at odds with anyone else. <coughs> Dent said Baldwin wasn't home until after nine or so. His mother left for work before he got home from school, and returned late that night. So, how much time did he spend with her? As for Baldwin's claim that he was talking to his girlfriend, Heather Clyatt told police that she was not able to get him on the phone that evening and asked him about his whereabouts when she saw him two days later on Friday, May 7th. The Walmart video game guy has never been clearly identified, nor has he stepped forward. Baldwin saw Adam Phillips and crew and traded a cassette after 9 p.m., so Adam Phillips and his sister and the sister's boyfriend offered Jason Baldwin no alibi. Now Baldwin admits he didn't press his original defense attorneys about testifying himself or offering up anyone as an alibi witness. I never confronted anybody about anything, Baldwin told Leverett years later. According to Darkspell, Baldwin's main contribution to his case post-conviction was rehashing his alibi. Now, and that would be the alibi that he never had. With millions of dollars pouring in for the West Memphis Three, Baldwin had nothing to show, nothing to bolster the case for his own defense, nothing to show he should be exonerated except his ridiculous non-alibi. After the Paradise Lost movies aired on HBO, singer Eddie Vedder of Pearl Jam asked John Phillipsborn, a San Francisco attorney, to consult on the case. Eventually, Phillipsborn took on the Baldwin case and, after much investigation, settled on what he perceived as failures in the original defense, such as the jurors never found out how far it was from Jason's house to the crime scene. That's very doubtable. That's very doubtful, but the distance was about two miles on foot, easily traversed in the time necessary for Baldwin to have gotten home around nine after killing the boys as late as 7.30 or 8. And possibly quite, uh, yeah, I mean, the attack almost certainly started occurring around 6.30. 
so he had plenty of time to get home by nine o'clock at night. He also had plenty of time to get, since he's, his, his whereabouts are really not accounted for very closely, after 5.30, 6 or so, he had plenty of time to get to Robin Hood Hills, particularly if he was in West Memphis, over in West Memphis and not as he would have been if, if he got through cutting the yard over at his Uncle Hubert's house at, say, 6, which is probably about as late. I mean, we'll get into that, but he, he sh you know, it shouldn't have taken him that long to cut that yard. And if he was through at 545, 530, 545, he had plenty of time to get over to uh, Robin Hood Hills. In fact, he had plenty of time to get home uh, to Lakeshore, meet Jason, 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 uh, Jesse Miskelly and uh, Damian Eccles and walk from there over to Robin Hood Hills and get there by 630. According to Darkspell, Phillips Bourne continued, they were not shown the route that he would have, have had to follow to return there to catch the Thursday morning school bus. They were not told about the traffic density along the route of travel or the opportunities, given the population density in his trailer park, for someone to have seen him covered in mud, water, and blood skulking back home. Now, the traffic density along the route of travel, it depends on which route you're talking about. I mean, I've traveled. I have a, I have not walked the route. I've used an odometer and I've eyeballed it numerous times. Uh, and I'm familiar with the traffic in that area been up and down that service road hundreds of times. It's not that heavily traveled. The interstate is heavily traveled. That is true. Service road is not that heavily traveled. It's, re it's reasonably heavily traveled. I mean, it's not as if it's vacant or never used or something, but it's not as if it's just jammed up with traffic all the time. And there are people walking along the side of the road all the time there. Now, the route that he, that's described them taking is not the main traffic routes, but it would be a pedestrian route, which would involve crossing, crossing the interstate, going along the from Blakeshore going down, going across the interstates, in which you wouldn't encounter that much uh, traffic until you got back on the service road on the uh, south side. You come down from the north, across the interstates. You've got a service road. You've got the combined uh, I-55 and I-40. It's about eight lanes of traffic. So you got to be, you know, but the, it, there there are gaps in the traffic enough that a pedestrian can cross it, obviously, because they do. And you cross that, so you're not really in the line of traffic, eye of traffic for very long at all. And there's no traffic when you're doing that. 
And then when you, you cross uh, the, eight, the four lanes again, you go across the service road, which is two, there's two lanes there. So you're talking about crossing, you know, a lot of lanes of traffic, but some of those lanes are not that heavily traveled. Service roads are probably not that heavily traveled, depending on time of day, and particularly what area of the service road you're talking about. Um, then, and five o'clock in the afternoon it would be busy, but it wouldn't be impossibly busy. Uh, then you, you know, from there, it's just not that far to Robin Hood Hills. It's also not that far if you just simply went from Uncle Hubert's house over there. It would not be, uh, you would go back across uh, the, one of the main routes in town, a Missouri Street, and a couple of different routes you could go, but the one that makes the most sense would be going, going from where Hubert's house was uh, going up to uh, Missouri Street, which is a, just a, not very far at all, a block or two from uh, Hubert's house and, and to the east, and then uh, going up uh, a couple of blocks till you get to uh, the, the service road, going down the service road to Robin Hood Hills. Pretty busy there, and I, I don't think anybody would dispute that it's pretty busy there. It's also not unusual to see people walking there, so it's not that unusual, particularly kids, particularly after school, weather's nice. I may say kids, teenagers, not little kids. Little kids wouldn't be walking there, but teenagers, young adults would be. Um, the... And I would grant you, I, I'm always surprised that they didn't have more sightings. I, I will grant you, I am surprised. They didn't have more people coming forward and saying, yeah, I saw those three boys walking along the service road or crossing the interstate or cutting Hubert, Hubert Bartouche's yard or, or whatever. But they didn't come forward. And, I, you know, the one person that came forward that saw somebody was... Uh, not the one, but the family that came for was the so-called Hollingsworth clan. Uh, I just love, uh, you know, I just love how they're always the clan. But anyway, the Hollingsworth clan came forward, said they saw uh, Damien Eccles that evening. Otherwise, it's, there's not much mention of that. But then there's not much mention of any them being seen by anybody else doing anything else including Jason just simply walking home from Uncle Hubert's or hanging out at uh, Walmart. Not, you know, so it cuts both ways with this. We just didn't have that many witnesses going either way. All he had to do was have one per one or two people say, yeah, I remember seeing Jason uh, coming home. He looked like he was coming out of Walmart about 630 uh, he was stuffing some quarters in his pocket, uh, and then I saw him cross the interstate. It looked like he was headed across the interstate back home. And there you would have had his alibi, but it, that parking lot was probably fairly full. Nobody reported that. So, and as far as being covered in blood, water and mud, water and blood, well... 
he was going to be he was going to be fairly well washed off by the time he got home. If he got home at 8.30 and they spent a lot of time washing up, yeah, he came home with some dirty clothes, but probably not so dirty that anybody really noticed it. In fact, Dink Dent gets into that, where he simply didn't notice how dirty Jason's clothes were because he came home with clothes that were dirty so much of the time and... Frankly, the trailer park kids, not the most hygienic bunch of youngsters in the world. But, you know, it's the Thursday morning school bus. Baldwin helped drown the boys some 12 hours before getting on the bus after his killing spree of the night before. As for traffic density, it might have been fairly busy along the interstate, but... Baldwin's return route would not have been heavily traveled, which is just absolutely true. He would not have been, uh, particularly once you get across the interstate and get, go back up to Lakeshore, there are not that many, you know, he, there are not that many people traveling over there. There are not that many people that are out. You're not passing a lot of houses or trailers till you get to his house. As for someone seeing him, quote, covered in mud, water, and blood skulking back home, the prosecution offered testimony from Darling Hollingsworth and family that was strikingly just that, except they identified the muddy walkers as Damien and Domini. The prosecution attempted to make the case that the Hollingsworth had misidentified Baldwin as Domini. Baldwin would have been returning to the trailer park on a pleasant May evening when a scroungy-looking teenager would have been just part of the passing scene in the rough-edged Lakeshore community. The Baldwin defense came down then and continues to come down since to, quote, he said he didn't do it and so he didn't do it. Miss Kelly said Baldwin did do it. Phillipsborn found the Miskelly version of events, that is the confession made multiple times, unreliable. Otherwise, Phillipsborn felt the post-conviction investigation should focus on, quote, the lack of relationship between Jesse, Jason, and Damien at the time. The lack of relationship? Really, Mr. Phillipsborn? Uh, Jason and Damien were inseparable best friends, Jesse was a longtime friend of Jason's who lived in a nearby trailer park and hung out like Damien and Jason at the few hangout spots, being the Lakeshore store, the Walmart, the skating rink, the bowling alley. Uh, Damien, and, uh, Damien and Jason were mad at Jesse because he'd gotten them in trouble because he'd stolen a, 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 pool, a, a pool ball off uh, at the pool at the pool hall and had they'd been blamed on them he'd stolen something else from um, I think one of the little girls and they were mad at him about that in other words there was no lack of relationship I'm not going to argue that J Jesse Miskelly was best friends with uh, Jason Baldwin and Damien Eccles I don't think Damien and 
Jesse had a lot in common and didn't really like, I don't think they liked each other that much. I do think that they, according to Damien himself, they hung out together. They did things together. And they did things together at the very places I mentioned. Um, as for Jason and Jesse, I devoted a whole chapter to the, uh, the the relationship between them, including them being seen together, just by mutual acquaintances, just two coming into the uh, skating rink together, just two days after the the killings. And uh, uh, Miss Kelly is described as being friends with Damien by other acquaintances in different different parts. And we can I'm not going to go back over that whole chapter. But the point being is there was a relationship among these three, particularly very close relationship with Damien and Jason, and a less close but still real relationship between Jesse and the other two killers. Now, Phillips Bourne also cited the time of death and likely death scenario. Now, evidence was scarce after Baldwin and Eccles drowned the boys, washed away blood and other signs of struggle and carefully hid clothes, bikes, etc. And the evidence on the time of death has been contradictory. While the physical evidence against Baldwin derived from the crying scene came down to a few fibers, there was no exonerating evidence. The evidence on the time of death being contradictory comes down to uh, the medical examiner being asked about uh, Peretti being asked about uh, time of death, and they finally pinned him down, and he mentioned uh, based on lividity and so forth that he thought it would have been in the early morning hours at 1, 2, one, two 3 o'clock, sometime in the early morning like that. That's a common talking point for supporters. However, given the disposition of the bodies in cool water, and then the bodies being taken out, and they were in the water for 18 hours, and then been taken out on the bank and laid out in the heat for, you know, an hour or so, uh, in a an area that was not that easy to get to. It's not it wasn't that remote, but it was not that easy to get to. Um, until the uh, coroner arrived, bodies could be taken away. Um, it was a little difficult to determine just exactly what the condition of the bodies would have been uh, under more normal circumstances. Uh, if there is such a thing in a mur- as a murder scene, that probably would have been a little more accurate. But it's a, all that is basically a guess anyway. And Peretti was being honest about what the signs of the death would have been. I don't, I don't see any evidence that the boys were killed that late in the evening. The idea that they were tied up someplace else and then somebody came back in the dark. Well, people were still wandering around, going through the woods, looking for the boys, shining flashlights uh, till late that very, very late that evening, early in the morning. Um, the idea that somebody would have been in the woods having done something with the boys earlier, I don't know, put them down a manhole or some other ridiculous thing, pulled them out of the manhole, came back and killed them. 
why would number one why would anybody go to that kind of trouble why would you move them from someplace else back again there why would you go to that much trouble to do that and then there's no evidence that that's what occurred all you've got is some uh, some some somewhat contradictory evidence about time of death you got miss skelly saying it happened the early evening Almost everything else indicated it happened in the early evening at sometime between 6.30 and 8. And then you've got the, some medical evidence showing it based on these physical signs that maybe it occurred later. And other than those weak elements, Phillips Bourne suggested the case should focus on, quote, more alibi info if it is out there. And the good question is, is it, if it is out there, is it out there? Uh, if Baldwin's alibi had been sufficient to prove his innocence, if only his witnesses had been allowed to testify, why would more alibi info be needed? Now, no new alibi witnesses come forth publicly. Unlike Eccles, Miskelly, and a number of potential suspects, Baldwin refused to take a polygraph test. Eccles and Miskelly failed their test, indicating deception about the killings, but those results were not presented at trial. While, of course, since Baldwin didn't take the test at all, we can't speak at all to his, uh, whether uh, that would have indicated his innocence or guilt. Uh, Baldwin's mother, very early in the investigation, during a visit to the Baldwin home on May 9th, by officers Bill Durham and Shane Griffin, shut down cooperation with the authorities. And that May 9th, the, uh, the murders occurred on May 5th. The bodies of these three eight-year-old boys, Christopher Byers, Stevie Branch, Michael Moore, were found on May 6th, which is a Thursday. Now, on May 9th, Gail Grinnell, Baldwin's mother, arrived home during the police interview, and she was very angry about this. Uh, Durham said she was, quote, very upset and accused us of picking on her son and said she did not want us talking to him, unquote. Investigators viewed her reaction as overly defensive and hence suspicious. Again, not proof of guilt, but it doesn't sound good when your mother is, don't talk to the police. Maybe good, maybe if you're guilty, it's good to not talk to the police. And arguably, even if you're innocent, perhaps it's good to not talk to the police, but it doesn't make you look innocent. Investigators contacted many other people, and almost everyone else talked to the police. Some of them got a little more reluctant to talk as the investigation moved along, based on the record. And, and of course, there are some who obviously, they're not, they, we don't have interviews with them, we don't have this or that, and 
that would indicate that maybe they didn't want to talk to the police. But we don't have I, I, all those records of who they contacted that turned them down for interviews. If those people exist, they're not obviously on the Callahan site that I can find. At Callahan at mysite.com, in case you're not familiar with what I'm talking about. So the defense team for Baldwin relied on the fact that, unlike Eccles or Miskelly, there was relatively little evidence tying him to the crime that would make it into the court record. Paul Ford, who was the coroner appointed attorney for the Baldwin defense, testified in a Rule 37 hearing in 2008. The Rule 37 hearing would be about the claim that uh, Baldwin received an adequate defense at the time, so Ford would be basically defending his own actions as Baldwin's attorney. Anyway, Ford said, Jason always maintained his absolute innocence in this case. Now, I've been doing pretty well criminal defense work for 20 years, and I've had a lot of clients begin with very low assertions of absolute innocence that deteriorate as discovery and other matters progress. Uh, And I don't think that it is plausible. It wasn't then, and it's not now, in my practice to take an initial assessment of innocence and immediately formulate a strategy that that's what we're going to do because they do change from the initial denial as the matter progresses. But that was Jason's initial assertions, and he maintained those throughout the entire course of the proceedings. And as the matters developed, and he maintained his assertions, and his assertions were consistent with what I was viewing as, and his assertions were consistent with, with what I was viewing as the evidence. At some point in time, that be, did become our strategy. So his strategy was, he was just absolutely innocent, innocent, and this had nothing to do with him. And they were relying, Baldwin and his defensive team were relying on the paucity of evidence against him. For Ford, it boiled down to, my client didn't do it. Ford has said he would have offered up an alibi witness if a credible witness had been available. Now, Ford's memory of Baldwin's account of his activities on May 5, 1993 was hazy by the time he was given this testimony in 2008, but he acknowledged, I think any time you consider uh, a defense that I'm innocent, I didn't do it, that it is helpful, if at all possible, to say I was somewhere else. I can account for my whereabouts and my actions during the time frame this was supposedly occurring. So yes, I did consider an alibi. You should always should if your client is, I didn't do it because I wasn't there. But so where was Baldwin if not in Robin Hood Hills? And what was he doing if not brutally slashing open the face of an eight-year-old while being egged on by his best friend, a self-admitted witch. (coughs) On one of the most potent nights on the pagan calendar. The notes from the May 9th police visit indicate that Baldwin, Damian Eccles, and Dominique Teer gave a joint account of their activities that afternoon, which consisted of all of them going to Jason's uncle's house so that Jason could cut grass. Then they said, 
Eccles called his father, who picked all of them up at 6 p.m. at the laundromat at Missouri Street in North Worthington. Joe Hutchison, Eccles' father, uh, Eccles was born as Michael Wayne Hutchison and later changed his name to Damian Eccles. Joe Hutchison, they said, drove Jason and Dominey home to Lakeshore Estates Trailer Park while Eccles went home with his dad. On September 25th, 2008, Baldwin gave a differing but fuller version in a Rule 37 hearing. And that, as I've said before, this was a bid for legal relief on the premise that his legal defense was inadequate. He also testified, telling the same basic story, though with added detail. And this is Jason's story here. He said, My family lived in the Lakeshore Trailer Park in Marion, Arkansas, north of West Memphis. The trailer park had a few hundred trailers in it. My mom was working in May 1993. At the time, she had a live-in boyfriend named Dennis Dink Dent. He had been living there for a month or two. My mother worked the late shift, which started at 2.30 or 3 p.m., and she got home at 10.30 to 11.30. Either Dink Dent or myself were responsible for watching the children. My recollection was that Dent left our home permanently on May 6, 1993, after I returned from school. I remember that day because it was when the boys' bodies were found. My mom told me to stay at home with my brothers. Plus, her and Dink had been in an argument the night before, and she kicked him out, so she wanted to make sure that we knew what she wanted us to do. I recall telling my lawyers that on May 5th, I got my brothers up for school. After school, I recall returning to my house and seeing Damien and Dominie sitting on the hood of an unusual car that was sitting in the front yard. Ken Watkins, another friend, came over. We were playing Super Nintendo. I told the lawyers that Dink was there. Dink told me that I had a call from my uncle who wanted to know if I was going to go over and cut his grass. I told the lawyers that my uncle was Hubert Bartouche. My uncle lived in West Memphis, close to the boys' club. I told the lawyers that Eccles, Dominey, and I walked from Lakeshore to my uncle's house. I described our route of travel over the overpass, through the Walmart parking lot, and past Kroger's straight to my uncle's house. (coughs) By the time I cut the front lawn at my uncle's house, Eccles and Dominey had left. Eccles had relayed word through Ken Watkins that he had to go call his mother. Not his father, but his mother. After Watkins told me that, I finished mowing the lawn. My uncle paid me $10. Ken Watkins and I had returned to a Walmart, and we ran into an Asian guy named Kim. Ken Watkins and I played a video game called Street Fighter 2. Watkins stayed there. I returned to Lakeshore. I went home. When I returned home, Dennis Dink Dent was still there, as were my brothers. I said I was in my home for a while before I went to Adam's house. At the time, my mother would call home from work. I knew that I had to be home or else I would get grounded. I recall that day that I had to purchase a tape recording from Adam, who lived next door to me. 
I'd gotten money from my uncle and used some of that to buy a music tape from Adam, Adam Phillips' friend. I went back home after that. I recall eating supper and talking on the phone to Holly and to Heather, my girlfriend at the time. I also remember, remember talking by phone to Damien and to Jennifer. It would be Jennifer Bearden. These were Holly George. I also recall talking to Dink Den at home that evening. We watched TV before I went to bed. As to the phone calls that I had on the night of May 5th, we were calling to eat one another serially. One of us would call the other. Damien Eccles was not at my house during the phone calls. There was no three-way communication. Now, as I've already mentioned, these girls said they did not talk to Jason that evening. In fact, they said they did not talk to him at all. Dink Dent, as we'll go on with this, if I don't get to it to today, I'll get to it next time. Dink Dent described Baldwin getting home as late as close to 9.30, 9 to 9.30, basically. It wasn't exact. Uh, the Asian guy named Ken... There's a Asian guy named Don Nam that police talked to who did describe initially seeing Dominique, Damien, and Jason all at the Walmart that evening around six. Again, it's not it's a, a story that is not corroborated by Dominique, not corroborated by Damien. It would corroborate Jason Baldwin's story. Jason, even as late as 2008, can't say, oh yeah, Don Nam said this. And the re part of the reason for that is Don, so he has to come up with some other Asian kid, which he continually, he still refers to this as an Asian kid. I saw a recent interview where he did this. But anyway, he, I heard a recent interview where he did this. But anyway, uh, Don Nam initially told police that, yeah, he saw them that evening, and then he promptly retracted his statement and said he thought he saw them two weeks earlier. Uh, to, to further put a cherry on this little Sunday of Don Nam and the, uh, th that alibi, uh, even if he had seen Dominique, Damien, and Jason together at the Walmart at 6, it's perfectly possible to walk from the Walmart where it was located then. And the last time I was in West Memphis, it would become a parking lot of the Kroger and the Walmart. The Walmart's much expanded and further to the west. But this was fairly close to Missouri Street. And it's possible to walk from that location to Robin Hood Hills and get there roughly around 6.30. Might take you a little longer than that, but I don't think so. Uh, it's about a mile, so it shouldn't take you that long. And... He... Ken... Ken... Uh, Hubert Bartouche doesn't really offer an alibi, and Ken Watkins, as we'll get into, offers such a contradictory story to everybody else. He has Dominique and Damien and Dominique all 
having a great time playing video games over at Jason's house that evening, which they say didn't occur. Uh, and then Ken Watkins later manages to tell a story that uh, Eccles described his involvement or his, his firsthand knowledge of the, of the murders. Uh, and then uh, Watkins was polygraphed about this, and he started denying that the story was true that he just told. <coughs> and the polygraph indicated he was lying about his denial. So that's a double negative, which means that his story was true. Or at least those elements he was taught. If, if, I, say, if I say I did this, then I do a, take a polygraph and say I didn't do it, and it shows I'm lying, then it, to me it would seem to indicate that I did do it, and perhaps there's some nuance in there that uh, the polygraph uh, technique would uh, overlook, miss, but that's essentially essentially what that shows is Ken Watkins was telling the truth when he said Damien Eccles told him that he was involved in these murders and had firsthand knowledge and was at present at the murders. He didn't apparently didn't get into a lot of detail. Now, Baldwin uh, Baldwin, uh, I'm going to, uh, here for a second. Now this 2008 rule 37 hearing focused heavily on Baldwin's claim that he had not been adequately defended by his lawyers. Uh, Baldwin, who's continues to complain about this sort of thing. And in recent interviews claimed that Ford had never told him that Eccles had hurt their case with his testimony and that Ford was not going to call alibi witnesses, including Baldwin's mother. And let me just say off right off, and I'm sure I'll reiterate this point, but Baldwin's mother would have been one of the worst witnesses ever. Uh, Baldwin's defense team never wanted his case to be tried with Eccles and sought unsuccessfully to sever the cases on numerous occasions. Um, Ford was forthright about his unhappiness with the Eccles defense. I had some real reservations about some of their strategies, and I thought their efforts to uh, attack Mr. Byers at the, I mean, this is the father of one of these boys, and to try to turn the spotlight on him. If you're going to try to pin the tail on that donkey, you better have the goods. You mentioned something backfiring. I mean, you talk about alienating a jury. They had sympathy for this man. He's lost his child, and now you have someone pointing the finger at him. That's a dangerous strategy. And they're talking about John Mark Byers. John Mark Byers, who just recently died in a traffic, horrible traffic accident. Uh, apparently somewhat strange and even sort of sketchy circumstances. He apparently wasn't driving a car he wasn't supposed to be driving. He wasn't supposed to be driving. Apparently he was racing home to get on his oxygen tank, <coughs> which sounds like a, a real nightmare all the way around and apparently had this crash, crash on this 
uh, hazardous road in the Millington, Tennessee area, north of Memphis. Anyway, he'd given this knife to this uh, crew member on the HBO Paradise Lost film crew, and uh, they'd just seen some blood on it. They just raised suspicions. They attempted to... Uh, they they took some blood sand. They got the blood out. It was blood. My buyers didn't do a really great job explaining explaining where the blood might have gotten, how the blood might have gotten on the knife. The blood could match him, or it could match his son, which again raises suspicions. And his son was not his natural son. Supposedly, supposedly he was adopted father. I don't know draw your own conclusions about why the blood would have been matching. But anyway, um, the, you know, there, there was this suspicion and he was, you know, confronted in court about this. And then there were two movies that two first two paradise lost movies went out of their way to make John Mark Byers look guilty of committing the crime, even though as, uh, Ford says you better have the goods, and guess what? They didn't have the goods. He has a pretty good. He has a really good alibi for that evening. How is he supposed to commit the crime when he's in the company of someone virtually all evening? And you know the time, the the little bit of time that he was by himself, he went to change clothes, was not long enough to to have committed these murders. And, I mean, he did change clothes, so he had to have gone home and changed clothes and done, I mean, it was, he wasn't gone that long. And otherwise, his, his presence is accounted for all evening by somebody in his, that was with him. Not to mention numerous calls to the police, sheriff's department, search and rescue. You can argue that he was overreacting, but, you know, in retrospect, it seems like he wasn't. Uh, and uh, Marl Everett's book went out of her way. She went out of her way to make him look guilty as well. And still people talk about that, like that's the book to go to. Why? Why, if you spend that much time on John Mark Byers' previous divorce, has nothing to do with the murders and his, you know, his drug history and his, his uh, career problems, etc., etc. They have nothing to do with the crime. You do that if you want to make somebody look guilty, and you and you soft pedal uh, Damien Eccles and his trips to uh, all these mental hospitals. And you've even just barely mentioned the favorite alternative suspect now, Terry Hobbs. Terry Hobbs has just barely, barely mentioned the book. And suddenly he's the big, you know, he's the big boogaboo now. If he, if he was so suspicious now, if he's so suspicious now, why wasn't he suspicious when Mara Leverett was writing this book? Now, in contrast to the uh, making Eccles making buyers look guilty, uh, Eccles went with a stealth defense, which is letting the other defendant draw as much attention as possible while downplaying his, his own client's involvement. Uh, 
Ford was never on board with Ron Lax's Inquisitor Incorporated role in the case. Ultimately, he felt Lax offered little as substance to either the Miskelly or Eccles defense. Now, the late Ron Lax uh, volunteered his services uh, to the defense, particularly Eccles, because he was adamant opponent of the death penalty. And, of course, he did this all out of the goodness of his heart, but he did present a bill to the court. Uh, Baldwin disagreed with uh, Ford's testimony that Eccles' alibi witnesses and testimony were ineffective. He had also heard Lax testify that he felt alibi's defense was ineffective. Now, about his own opinion about uh, Eccles' case, his presentation of the case, his testimony and his alibi witnesses. Baldwin said, at the time, I didn't think there was anything wrong with it. And now I don't think anything was wrong with it. Few would agree. I mean, he might be in a minority of one. Uh, The jury did not find Eccles or the defense witnesses to be credible or sympathetic. They made Eccles look guilty. Eccles made himself look guilty by his own testimony. He hurt himself immensely by his own testimony. Baldwin also claimed that he'd been given a statement. He had given a statement that named potential alibi witnesses, and he gave a rundown of his activities for May 5th. But there's there's no record of that statement. I wanted to testify, he said. And I wanted my mom, my brothers, everyone to testify that that was going to happen, but it never did. Uh, Baldwin testified in this Rule 37 hearing. Was he at home that evening? Did his version of events jibe with what investigators were told? Would testimony from his mother, his brothers, and everyone have helped or hurt? Ford decided that such testimony could hurt. He stood by that decision in 2008. Gail, which is Baldwin's mother, Gail gave me some information. Uh, in all due respect, she was not the most helpful witness. She was, and I quite frankly can't blame her, but mainly due to the magnitude of the stress that she was under, sometimes I don't feel like she truly understood everything that was going on and the significance of why certain things would be helpful and why certain things would not be helpful to me. He's being very kind here. Baldwin claimed Ford, quote, never said that my family, my friends would unravel on the witness stand. Now he said before that, you know, that witnesses could unravel on the witness stand, that they would become confused about times and stuff like that, and that it could possibly hurt the case. He had told me that before, but he didn't say, listen, your witnesses or your mom or your brother or your uncle or anybody like that is specifically going to unravel. Uh, Baldwin's uh, doing a little bit of uh, a little bit too much, a little bit too much outrage over this. In fact, his mother almost certainly would have unraveled on the, the stand. His little brother wouldn't have done well. Uncle Hubert probably would have done poorly. It's a little hard to tell. He's, there's not an extensive interview with him, but it gives, he gives some contradictory uh, statements to. Uh, that really wouldn't help Baldwin's case, as we'll see. 
and probably not today. Baldwin also testified in 2008. I talked to Heather and Holly and Jennifer that night. He claimed that Heather would have been able to testify that she had talked to both Eccles and Baldwin. I wasn't aware of any concerns, unquote, about her testimony, said Baldwin. Now, neither Heather, Jennifer, Heather, uh, Heather Quiet, Jennifer Bearden, Holly George, or Damien Eccles said they talked to Jason Baldwin that evening. Now, much, much later, Heather made a claim that she talked in a very, you know, a late night phone call, three-way call with Damien and Jason that evening, you know, sometime after midnight. Why she went into that, it just, it, it why she gave that story, it makes no sense at all. But as far as helping the defense, it didn't make her look any more credible and she already had some credibility problems. But she never said she talked to Jason that evening. In fact, she said she didn't talk to him all day, and she asked him about it when she saw him on uh, the 7th. <coughs> so... What this boils down to, and I think I'm going to stop here because my throat's getting itchy, but um, what this boils down to is Jason Baldwin was flailing about then and he's still flailing about for some sort of alibi, some sort of me, some means of proving that he didn't was not involved in this crime. And those means have never appeared. His claims that he was talking on the phone, that he hung out with various people, and he was talking, you know, it, it, yeah, he, he, he talked to his mother on the phone at 9.30 at night, and he saw Dink Dent at 9 or 9.30 that evening, and he saw his brother at 9.30 or 9, 9 or 9.30 that evening. And uh, he saw Damien and Domini sometime that day, and Uncle Hubert, Hubert, Uncle Hubert Bartouche, he saw us earlier in the, you know, in the late afternoon, five, five thirty or so. None of that offers him an alibi. And as I said, Ken Watkins, his young, his little friend, little little bit Watkins, little bit offered no credible alibi to Jason Baldwin because his story is absolutely uncorroborated by anybody else. And I'm signing off with that. I'm going to get into <coughs> the details on uh, what the earlier witnesses get, get away from the Rule 37 hearing and Baldwin's story there and get into what people said back in May and June and, and later in uh, 1993 and 1994 about Jason Baldwin and where he was and where he wasn't. Then the bottom line is, is nobody gives Jason Baldwin an alibi.
And it's interesting. Nobody who does these interviews with him challenges him on this. They're either ignorant of the case, which is almost always true. They may have seen a movie or two. Sometimes, sometimes you get the impression they may have just seen one of the documentaries. And then um, beyond that, uh, Jason has, you know, he really has nothing. He has nothing. He has, he, he, where were you, Jason? Well, uh, you know, he, he doesn't, he, he can't come up with anything. And it's, it's much like the lake knife story. You know, the more he talks about it, the more, you know, if it started out seeming fairly credible, that maybe he threw the knife into the lake for some reason, or his mother threw the knife. I think originally it was his mother threw the knife into his, the lake a, a year before because she was mad at him because she didn't want him to have knives. And he was fishing, so you really need a knife when fishing, but that's let's get past that. So he has a knife while he's fishing, and his mother gets mad because he has a knife, and she throws it into the lake, which is really like a scummy pond, but let's call it a lake behind his house, which is really a trailer. Uh, that wasn't that sounded somewhat credible. At least it's you know it's a story that could, could be proved. It probably can't be proved. Maybe they can find a witness to that, and they seem to have some people saying that. But they also have people saying co- contradictory things. But then the Baldwins themselves make these contradictory statements that create problems with their own story, and they can't seem to come up with a consistent story that makes sense. And the reason is, is because they're lying. They're not telling the truth. Jason's a pretty good liar. Damien's a pretty good liar. When you lie all your life and your whole whole life is basically a lie, you get to be pretty good at lying. Some of the other people that they deal with, they're not so used to lying, maybe. Maybe Jason's mother is not such a liar that she just has to lie all the time. So she hangs on to little bits of truth that help her hang on to the hope that maybe her son actually didn't kill these little boys. When, in fact, I'm sure she knows he did. I think she knew by May 9th that he almost certainly was involved. (coughs) And if he didn't out and out confess to her, he'd said enough that she knew. And she didn't want to know. And who can blame her? That's all I have for today. Uh, Episode 64 of The Case Against with Gary Meese. Check out my books on Amazon if you're so inclined. They're available in Blood on Black, Where the Monsters Go, and The Case Against the West Memphis Three Killers. They're available in Kindle format and in print. Thank you for listening, and I'll be back again soon. Stay well.